Go ahead and open in your Bibles to Genesis 2. We are in a series going through the book of Genesis, and today we're going to be looking at uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 18, going through verse 25. So this is going to be the passage that we will examine today. Um, I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll, uh, we'll get started. Genesis 2, starting at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man called, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, and to the birds of the heaven, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Amen. I'll say this mostly for the people who will listen to this message later on a podcast or on YouTube. Uh, the, the message and sermon we're about to hear today is going to touch on topics of gender and marriage and of sexuality, not in a uh, perverse way, but just in a way that is, that is prescriptive. And so if that's not something particularly you want your children hearing, um, now would be the time to pause. So you can listen to this later, and I think it will be edifying, but if you don't feel this is appropriate for kids who are young, please feel free to pause, come back to this later when your kids are ready. Um, this is like, uh, I feel like this is like one of those like parental advisory stickers that used to go on CDs that you would buy. Just be like, hey, just so you know, parental advisory. Um, and I actually, I think that the best way to start this message is to talk about CDs. So some of you are of a certain age, so I should explain what CDs are, compact disc. There was a time where music was not all digital. And if you wanted to listen to your favorite song, you went to the store, be it Best Buy or Sam Goody, or I don't know what the local record store was here, uh, Circuit City. National Record Mart, okay, National Record Mart. And we're not even going to get into records. We're talking CDs here. So we're not, we're not going back that far, but CDs. So there was a time where if you wanted to listen to your favorite music, you had to buy a physical CD, and it was one artist or one album and like 12 songs, and that's all you got. So when you bought the CD, uh, what I appreciate about CDs and records for that matter is that the sound quality is actually better than digital. But the only issue is, is that if you had a CD for a long time, some of you know what happens. It starts to skip. So either you scratch it or it's just been sitting in the car too long. And this is really a bummer because you'd be listening to your favorite song and then all of a sudden, zit, 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 like the music would just stop and it would start skipping. And so that's when you knew you had to put toothpaste or peanut butter or just buy a new CD because the record was damaged and it was a skip. The reason that I bring CDs up is that to me, the topic of marriage and gender and sexuality kind of feels like in conversations you hit a skip when you're talking to people. Uh, there, can be there were multiple times where I can think of having a conversation and telling somebody I'm a Christian or I go to church and it's going great and then this topic comes up and it's like, what do we do? I remember this one time um, we were hosting a Bible study. This was a church I was involved in before Eternal City. And this Bible study was open to having non-believers come. And so this guy shows up one time, and it's like he's, he's reading from the non-believer script. He's like, you know, at this Bible study, and he's like, I fell out of church, you know, I'm not really interested in religion, but I'm interested in Jesus, and I need to get my life back on track. And so we're going through this Bible study, and he's tracking with everything. Like, he's eating it up. And I don't remember what passages we were studying, but this was like an hour-long conversation about the Bible. And he's just like, oh, it sounds great. This is good. And so we're like, this is awesome. This guy's, you know, maybe going to become a Christian. And so at the end, we start talking to him about like, you know, we meet every week 
and we have service on Sunday if you're interested in coming to service. And again, he's still like, yeah, that sounds great. This is just what I needed. And as we're like wrapping up about to like put on our coats and leave, he says something to the effect of like, you know, this is really great. Um, this is exactly what I needed. And I'm all for this. As long as you guys aren't telling people who they should love. I don't think the church needs to be involved in telling people how they should express their love. And it was like that record scratch. Everyone's like, nope. what do we do now? Where do we go from here? And I think that's the question even today a lot of us are asking. Where do we go from here? Same-sex marriage legalized in 2015. Transgender terminology seems to be just part of the normal discussion. This is ingrained in our culture, it seems. And now what's even more interesting is you have people who are pastors and scholars and Christians who don't agree on issues of gender and marriage and sexuality. So where do we go from here? Put yourself in my shoes with that backdrop a few years ago. This was probably like five or 10 years ago, but put yourself in my shoes. Someone says that they're totally on board with following Jesus, really interested in becoming a Christian, as long as you don't tell people who they should love, or in today's discourse, we could also add, as long as you don't tell people what gender they should be, because Christians should be all about love. I will uh, suggest that whatever answer you're thinking of in your head will only be as good as the definitions that you provide. Oftentimes we use words like male or female or freedom or love or God, and we say those things and we don't know that when we say love, we mean A, but when person across from us hears love, they think B. And so what I wanna do is just start today by giving us some definitions, helping us define some of the terms that are a part of this discourse. And then I wanna talk about how we can have the conversation around some of these difficult topics like gender and marriage and sexuality. And I actually wanna close by talking about posture because even if our definitions are right, if we have the right things to say in conversation, if our posture is wrong, we are wrong. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. We wanna be people who don't just have knowledge, but have love that builds others up. So let's start with definitions and let's look at our passage today. This is all gonna be driven from Genesis 2, 18 through 25. And the thing that I, I wanna say about definitions is when we think about definitions, we have to think about what is the source of where these definitions come from? Starting in verse 18, it says, then the Lord God said, and then everything else follows it. So this isn't a politician that's saying something. This isn't a special interest group that's saying something. This isn't a church leader that's saying something. This is the Lord God said. So before we define anything, we have to remember where, as Christians, we believe our definitions come from. And according to the first two chapters of Genesis, these are coming from a supremely all-powerful being who speaks the world into existence, who speaks light into existence, who creates the heavens, creates the sky, creates all the living creatures, creates all the beauty that we could know in the world, and he forms it all from nothing. So it's this Lord God who created everything from nothing, and that everything from nothing he created is beautiful and life-giving. Like if you think about our planet, for example, our planet is far enough away from the sun that we don't all burn up. It's close enough to the sun that we don't all freeze. It spins on this axis that's perfect enough to give day and night enough to sustain and give life to people for generations and generations. I think we could observe that from our solar system even, God defines and God designs for our good. So according to this text, it is that Lord God who set all the things in our solar system and our earth and everything in motion. It's that same Lord God who gives us life, who also gives us our definition of man and woman and marriage. I remember one time in particular, some of you guys know who Jackie Hill Perry is. She has a book in our bookstore. You can read about her testimony and everything about her. But one time in particular, I was listening to an interview where she was talking about leaving her life of sexual sin. And she said something that stuck with me, which was, you know, my problem wasn't so much my sexual sin. My problem was unbelief. And I remember thinking that stuck with me because again, we have to consider the source of our definitions. I think that's what she meant when she said that. She didn't consider the source, 
of what defines and does not define sexual sin. Again, verse 18, the Lord God said. So it might be helpful when you're talking to people or having this conversation to, to set level set, like where are your definitions coming from? Is it a political interest group? Is it what you think is best for people? Is it history? Is it what you studied? Is it science? Because oftentimes those things don't align. And I agree with Jackie Hill Perry that sometimes the issue isn't so much that people sin, it's their sin as a result of their unbelief. And it could be that they don't believe in God at all, or it could be that they believe in a different God, or at least a God who's different than what we have described in this passage. So if you believe in a God that's different than what's described in this passage, and maybe it's just some you know, thing that you've picked up from being in a church service here and there, but you don't really have a biblical definition of God, and you think maybe God is some you know, uh, cosmic being who wants to smite you the moment that you mess up, when you read the phrase, the Lord God said, that might not be that compelling to you. And right in this passage, what I like is that we get definitions of what the Lord God is like. You can see verse 19, he's a creator, right? Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and the birds and every bird of the heavens. And we can also see that God creates with purpose. And one of the unique purposes God created was his purpose for humans. According to this text, humans are created to share dominion with God. And that's something that we get back even from Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that God makes both man and woman in his image, and he gives them dominion over creation. And here we can, in Genesis 2, we start to see the playing out of that special assignment that God gives man this assignment to name all of the creatures in all creation. And so God is giving humans, kind of the playing out of Genesis 1, that special opportunity to rule over creation with him. And before this process even starts, in verse 18, God makes an observation. It is not good for the man to be alone. So God puts the man to sleep and then makes a helper or a woman suitable for him. Now, before we dive into the bringing together of the man and the woman, I want to pause and I want to draw out a few definitions that we can get from this passage and and perhaps broadly from Genesis. First is who is God? From these chapters, we can observe that God is an all-powerful being responsible for creating everything. The second, who, who are people? Who is mankind? Who is humankind? Man consists of men and women, both equally created in God's image, given special assignment from God to rule over all creation. That's, those are they're very kind of basic textbook definitions. What I appreciate about the Bible is it doesn't just give us textbook definitions, but it gives us poetic beauty behind those definitions as well. And one of those is Psalm 8. Beautiful description of who God is and who mankind is. Let me read it for you. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along, passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the Bible gives us this glorious picture of who God is and who people are. And then it gets to further defining what's required or what is defined when it comes to man and woman and marriage and gender. The reason that's important is because I think we have to know the how for God designed us before we get to the what God designed us for. There's a book called Total Truth written by an author named Nancy Piercy, and she talks about what's described as a Christian worldview. That's what Psalm 8 is. That's what the definitions I just tried to give you for man and woman and God are. And 
in talking about a Christian worldview, she gives this example in her book, and it's actually from a CD, a song that was on CD, I remember in the 90s, um, to illustrate the fact that not everybody in our culture has a Christian worldview. The song she talks about has a chorus that some of you might know if you were around in the 90s. Um, the chorus of the song went like this. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Some of you remember that song. That was a popular song, quite popular song in the 90s. Yeah. So you have this song that has a, a low view of people, right? We're just mammals. And then a very low sexual ethic. Let's do whatever we want sexually. Notice the assumptions in that, the how we were created. And notice how that downgrade of humans to, hey, we're just mammals. We're just like dogs and cats and kangaroos or gorillas, then leads to very sexually explicit and sexually uh, degrading actions. Contrast that against what the Bible sets up. High view of God, high view of people above animals, created in his image, created to share dominion with him, and then from that, we get our sexual ethic. So there's a difference in the how behind humans were created that the Bible has and what oftentimes is popular in our culture. You hear it today if you listen to music on the radio. Uh, women are names that I can't repeat, right? These, H's, men are savages, and then that's followed by sexually degrading activity. That's the opposite of what the Bible does, where it sets up no matter your age, your gender, man or woman, you are created in God's image above the animals, created to share dominion with him. And then from there, we get our sexual ethic. So there's a difference there. And that's context that's important that we have to describe before we get into the what of what the Bible talks about when it comes to marriage and gender and sexuality. So with that, let's pick up at, um, pick up at verse... Middle of verse 20. Middle of verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, man and woman in chapter one of Genesis have already been established as both made in God's image, equally bearing his image and equally sharing the responsibility to rule over all creation. What we have in Genesis two is a specific man and a specific, uh, a specific man that God observed it is not good that he should be alone. And what's created is described a helper suitable for this specific man, a helper suitable for him. Now, that word helper in Genesis 2 is the Hebrew word izer. Most often in scripture, this word izer is actually used to describe God coming to the help of his people. This is Psalm 121. My izer, or my help, comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So the help here is not the man's got it figured out and he just needs someone to do the paperwork and cook the meals. The help here is a necessary balancing out of what it means for people to be made in the image of God. Remember, that's just echoing Genesis 1.27. Men and women are both created in the image of God. So again, our Ezer is our necessary help for God's image to be fully manifested in people, to fill the earth and subdue it. And so we see God put the man to sleep, and from his rib or from his side, God makes the woman. I love the, the poetic nature of this. So she's created from his side, not his head, that she's above him, not his feet, that she's below him, but from his side, which is actually, I love that, that that's called out in the discussion guide. That's not something that was uh, commonly thought of during that day, but there is an equality of both men and women, and she's created from his side. Now the Lord brings this man and woman together, and the man's response is one of astonishment, this beautiful poem that he breaks out into. And I'll call out a few lines from it. The line, he says that she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Again, equality. 
we share a common flesh. But we are also opposites from the poem directly. She is woman, for she was taken out of man. So in the poem, there's this dichotomy. There is equality and there is difference. And that sets up in verse 24, what we now call marriage. A man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife. So even though we see the establishment of men and women in Genesis 1.27, what we have here that's unique about this one man and this one woman is they share a common flesh and they are opposite but equal parts making up a mutual relationship that we now call marriage. So there's a, a theologian named Dr. Preston Sprinkle. He runs an entire ministry dedicated to marriage and gender and sexuality. I learned a ton from him, a lot of helpful content. Um, and a lot of what I'm talking about was influenced by his work. He has a really helpful point here when it comes to defining marriage. And it looks at verse 24. When verse 24 says, therefore, and anytime you see this word in the Bible, it's helpful to ask, what's it there for? So, therefore, right? Remember, we just saw this poem about the beauty of the difference of the equality yet oppositeness of man and woman. And then, therefore, because the man and woman are both opposite but equal parts, that reminds us what marriage is. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they become one flesh. So this definition is helpful. Anytime you're discussing or talking about someone, or talking, about someone, talking to someone about marriage and sexuality, try to agree on or, or tease out, what is your definition of marriage? Where does it come from? Again, this comes from Dr. Preston Sprinkle because he says, and I, th I think it's really wise to think about if marriage is just about love, whatever love is, or if marriage is just about family or success or protection, then define it according to those things. But if marriage is about what's written here in Genesis 2, the beauty of the equal but opposite parts of men and women coming together to image God accurately, then we have to define it according to the Bible. And based off that definition, we can conclude that biblically, marriage is designed for one man and one woman. That's not the only thing the Bible says about marriage, but that is a foundational concept of it. Remember the flow. Uh, going back, I'll go back here to Genesis 2. The man, or Adam, says, This is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then the connecting phrase, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So again, the beauty of the difference of men and women is tied together by that phrase, therefore, that then gives us our definition of marriage. And this is something that God defines and designs for our good. Now, with the, the definitions we just went through, who is God, who is man, who is woman, or who are humans, and then what is marriage, we can then begin to have constructive conversations with people. And we'll focus on two that we've already been talking about, right? Marriage and gender. Two things that oftentimes when they come up, especially if you're talking to someone who's a non-Christian, it might feel like you've hit that scratch in the CD and the music stops playing. So take yourself back to that group I was in where someone says, I don't think Christians should tell people who to love. Christianity is all about love and acceptance and we should love and accept what people want to do. And to, to expand on the logic a bit here, I think what people are getting at when they say statements like that is consent. And I've heard people say this, if two consenting adults want to do something, it's not harming anybody. And in fact, and it's, it's an expression of their love. Why would God want to tell them no? To answer that question, you have to have a biblical, biblically defined definition of who God is. If God is a genie to just be a augmentation of human desires, then sure, do, do what you like. God exists to help you achieve what you want in life. It's like the movie Aladdin, he's a genie, you rub the lamp, you get your wishes, and if you do the right things, God will work on your behalf. But if God exists eternally, set the world in motion, and has authority to define and design for our good, then it's possible that some of the definitions that God has might not align with our desires 
even if those are desires that feel natural that we've had for as long as we can remember. And it's funny, you, you see that in Genesis. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Before sin enters the world, God set parameters on what people should and should not do because God has the authority to. He defines and he designs for our good. Now, this is where even other Christians will say, well, you're looking at the Old Testament God and he's just about rules and, uh, you know, being cruel and, 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 you know, Jesus is the fullest manifestation of that. And Jesus was all about love. And in fact, if you look at things like slavery or dietary laws or animal sacrifices, those evolve over time in scripture. And we have to follow the trajectory of what scripture teaches and Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment of that being all about love and loving your neighbor. And to, to some degree, that's true. Because if you look at issues like slavery, there does seem to be a trajectory of how they are dealt with in scripture. Uh, slavery is regulated in the Old Testament a bit, not in Exodus. <laughs> God is not happy with slavery in Exodus, but in other parts of the Old Testament, you could say, okay, well, God is perhaps endorsing or at least regulating the practice of slavery. But then you get to the New Testament and you have books like Philemon where the slave is to be treated like a brother. You have Galatians, free, there's, or Galatians 3, there's no slave or free. Paul tells slaves, if it's possible to work for your freedom, so we've perhaps moved to a more loving posture towards something like slavery. And the logic is that if the Bible evolves to a more loving posture on something like slavery that makes sense to us, can we have that same trajectory with something like marriage? Jesus was asked this question. Context was different, but essentially, can we shift the definition of marriage over time to fit what we think it should? This was in Matthew 19. And a Pharisee came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Notice Jesus's definition of marriage has the same prerequisite or the same criteria as what we read in Genesis, same logic. From the beginning, they were created male and female, equal but opposite, and then that big word, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, same logic. God creates the beauty of male and female, and therefore, a man and a woman joined together in marriage to image the fullness of God. Now, again, this is not all the Bible has to say about marriage. I actually really appreciate that we read Ephesians 5 before this started. There's a whole, and we have done whole sermons on what it means to be, marriage, to be married beyond just being a man or being a woman. We have entire sermons on that. But it, it, it's not less than that. It's not less than one man and one woman coming together to image God fully. So the reason we as a church stand behind this defining aspect of marriage, one man and one woman, is because God defines and God designs for our good. And Jesus, when he's asked about it, reinforces that same definition. And this is not something you see with other issues like slavery that do uh, ethic, uh, ethically get treated differently as you move throughout scripture. Now, I want to pause here and say that that understanding or that interpretation of what marriage is, um, that might be difficult for some people. For some people, that could mean that you have a deep desire to get married that you can never act on. That's difficult. And God can and does. There are testimonies of people who change. But for some people, they felt that way their entire life, and it doesn't go away. And I think, honestly, for people who embrace that calling, it's a clear example of what Jesus means when he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And that definition is not something that we should lord over people or be braggadocious about. I love, Chris always says, I think this should be presented like many things with gentleness and respect. I was listening to a pastor named Justin Lee who does not share my view on marriage and gender and sexuality, 
But he said something I thought was wise, which was, say hypothetically, and this is hypothetically, I want to emphasize that. Hypothetically, God spoke from heaven with a booming voice and said, marriage is a sin. I don't care if you're a man or a woman, marriage is a sin, no more marriage. If you're a Christian, you should be single. If you were married, you'd ask some questions about that. Did God really say that? Are we interpreting that correctly? Is there some other, like, was that, was that metaphorical? Is there an ethical trajectory with what God just said? You'd ask some questions, because it would have a large impact on your day-to-day life. And you'd probably have to think, okay, I have this relationship that I've been in that seems very deep and fulfilling and natural to me, and God is saying, I have to go this way. You'd probably have some questions before you made that choice. And there are people who do, if they come to this understanding of the Bible, have to make that choice. Do I follow this deep longing that I've had for quite some time that might change, but it might not? Or do I follow Jesus? That's a hard thing to wrestle with. And that's something that the church should allow people who experience that to wrestle with in the context of people who are patient, who are loving, like I said, who are gentle and respectful with how they uh, 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 present that doctrine. And I want to say that if that is you, or that's someone you love, they are welcome to wrestle here. Uh, I'm not preaching this sermon and saying, all right, agree with everything I've said, or else you can't come back. Jesus didn't teach like that. If he did, I would not be here, and neither would any of us. So if you have questions, if you aren't sure, or if you want to talk about how this impacts you or someone you love, Let's talk about that. You are welcome to have that conversation with any of our pastors, with any of our members, to really figure out, like, what does the Bible really say about this? And is this something I can obey? Is this something I can do? Is this something God is really calling me to? Does the Bible really say that? That's, a, that, that's not necessarily a bad impulse. I'm not saying that if you, you know, don't accept hook, line, and sinker, everything I've said, then you just want to you know, run off in sin and, and, and you just want to rebel. No, there are people who have genuine questions, and we should allow them to wrestle with those and still present our view and present our definition with gentleness and respect. So again, one man, one woman, part of the definition of marriage. A caveat, though, is that marriage is not a defining aspect of a fulfilling or abundant life. That mandate to fill the earth and subdue it in Genesis 127, that comes before marriage. So while marriage does glorify God, there are many people who glorify God and don't get married. Now, obvious answer, who am I going to say? Jesus, right? Jesus glorified God, obviously, never sinned, right? And did not get married. And that's a cliche answer, but it's one that we should really sit with. The perfect example of loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself was someone who did not get married, Jesus. Now, the other one I could say here is Paul, right? Paul wasn't married. Uh, You could make the case that Paul perhaps thought that it was better for people not to get married. This is 1 Corinthians 7. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. So Paul kind of makes it clear that being married is going to make it difficult for you to be fully devoted to the Lord. Now, Paul, of course, lived his life as a missionary. He wrote most of the New Testament. So again, you could say, well, that's Paul. He had a special calling from God. But there are people today. One example that I really appreciate um, is a civil rights attorney. His name is Brian Stevenson. There was a a uh, book written about him called Just Mercy. There was a movie that just came out about that book starring Michael B. Jordan. It was in theaters uh, three or four years ago. Um, he's dedicated his life to ending biases against poor and minority people who are in the criminal justice system. He's probably saved dozens of people from death row. And he is on record saying, quote, it is difficult to do what I'm doing and be married and have kids. He believes that his life is incompatible with marriage. He's not married. He lives a life that he feels is fit for what he wants to do, and that doesn't include marriage. That's normal. Half of the U.S. population is not married. So it is reasonable, normal, 
regular, for people to live an abundant, God-glorifying, joy-filled, Jesus-centered life and not be married. So this conversation about marriage doesn't necessarily apply to everyone. Now, the second part of the conversation, gender, this one does apply to everyone. Jesus' words when he says, from the beginning, they were created male and female. That's all of us fall into one of those categories. And that is a reality that scientists, whether they're Christian or not, unanimously agree on, that we all fall into one of those two categories. There are two sexes, male and female. Now, I want to emphasize the term sexes here. Scientists unanimously agree that there are two, almost. There's always a few. Scientists almost unanimously agree that there are two sexes. And I will say, an aside for category's sake, there are people that experience intersex conditions. This is when you were born with chromosome makeup of one sex, but you, perhaps your body has developed uh, features of the opposite sex. This is one in every 1,500 people. Some people have it and have zero clue they've had it, and some people have it and it requires medical intervention. But even an intersex condition is a condition that is resulting from one of two sexes. Again, clear on those definitions. So there are two sexes. That's where there's almost unanimously agreement. Where there's difference is how gender interacts with or relates to those two sexes. So again, sex, biological status, male, female, based off your chromosomes, XX women, XY men, based off your physical makeup. But then there's this category of gender. This is how people uh, relate to the roles, behaviors, and activities attributed to one sex. And gender is oftentimes, but not exclusively, influenced by our culture. And then gender identity is the term that's used to express how people express their gender in relation to their sex. And that's where you'll see disagreement. What do we do with this term gender and gender identity and how it plays into how we define ourselves? So uh, the reason that's important and the reason that's relevant is you have more and more people today who experience what they call gender dysphoria. That is where your gender, your internal sense of self, and your sex, the biological reality, they do not align. So I was born as, I'm just saying this hypothetically, someone was born as a man, but on the inside, they feel like a woman, where they were opposite, right? Born as a woman, but on the inside, they feel like a man. And for some people, that desire to be the opposite sex, that I don't have the right physical makeup that fits my internal identity, that's something that they've felt for as long as they can remember. So the question is, if someone was born one way, but they feel like they should be another way, I was born a man, but I feel like I present myself and I feel more comfortable presenting myself as a woman, which one should they go with? How they were born or how they feel? Now, before you make a knee-jerk response about feelings, um, some of you were born with curly hair and you straighten it because you feel like it. Some of you were born without tattoos and you get tattoos because that's what you feel like. Some of you were born with a certain name and you changed it because that's how you feel. So there are a lot of things Christians do because that's how I feel. Like I feel like I want to change the color of my hair. I feel like I want to gain weight and be bigger. I feel like I want to change my name or I feel like I want to get a tattoo. So what's happening is that logic is then just rolling down the hill to say, if I feel like I want to be another sex, what's preventing me from doing it? Something I think we should observe as Christians is in that beginning in Genesis 2, when God creates the woman, God, no, God knows that he's created, and we can observe that God has created a woman because God creates a body. And the man acknowledges that body by saying, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So there's a correlation then between our sex and our body. And our body is the telltale sign for what God intended. When God created the woman, again, he created a body. He didn't create a cultural way of understanding. He didn't create a trend. He didn't create a dress. He created a body. Earlier, I talked about, you know, there's this there's subtle kind of undertone sometimes in our culture where we can lower our view of humanity by comparing humans to, to animals or to mammals, right? Or to, you know, bees, H's, savages. Another way that we do that in our culture is to think about humanity as being this internal sense of self that is the real you. 
Do you ever hear phrases, people say something like, you know, what's inside you? That's the real you. That's not true. Not according to the Bible. Biblically speaking, our bodies are the real us. They were created by God, and they were given to us from him to be stewarded. So it's not just you're this soul in the inside and you eject from your body and it's like a, a shell casing that's holding the real you inside. No, your body is part of the real you. The reason we can observe that is because when Jesus came to earth, what did he come in? He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a trend or a way of thinking. Jesus came to earth in what? A body. You could see him. You could touch him. You could feel him. So biblically speaking, our bodies are significant. 1 Corinthians 6, I love this verse, puts it this way. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You were not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. Now glorifying God in our body means trusting that our bodies are the design that he created for us. Now, glorifying in your God in your body does not mean following every cultural stereotype that exists for being a man or being a woman. There's some interesting things in the Bible um, that, that I think cut against this, or, or at least encourage this. The first man in the Bible that's described as being filled with the Holy Spirit, you know what he's doing? Crafts. He's making crafts. There we go. Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, and with knowledge and all craftsmanship. So if a young boy is into arts and crafts and not football, does that mean he's gay or trans? Not according to the Bible. So men's ministry foundry, craft night. Let's do it. Let's do it. It'll be fun. Yeah, Crystal paint. Eddie will sing. Write some poetry. Crafts. It'll be great. Or on the opposite for women, Proverbs 31. This is like a cliche verse, but it's right there. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. So if a girl is into math and stocks and finances and working with her hands, does that mean she's one of the guys? Again, not according to the Bible. So women's study, if you guys want to like look at the market and see where you want to invest and read Forbes and learn about business trends, do it. Biblically speaking, there's, there's nothing preventing you from doing that. So tie all this together. There's tons of examples we could go through in the life of Jesus and lots of women you see in the Bible that cut against our cultural stereotypes of men and women. Those are just two examples that we, we shouldn't define what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman by what our culture has as stereotypes. So loop this all around. If someone was born a specific sex, but they feel like their gender identity tells them that they should present themselves a different way, which one should they go with, how they were born or how they feel? According to the Bible, you should go with your body because God designs and God defines for our good. And your body is the real you. Just like the man and woman in Genesis, God formed or knit each of us together in our mother's womb as male or female. And I'll, I'll say that it doesn't feel that way for many people. And that's normal, actually. All the way back to Genesis, in Genesis 3, after the first man, Adam and Eve, after they sin, what do they do? They cover their nakedness. They don't feel comfortable in their bodies anymore. Which is why Jesus, coming in a body, living in a body, resurrecting and coming back in a body is good news. Not just for him, but for us. Because one day we'll feel at home in our bodies. This is uh, there. Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that the Spirit enables him to subject all things to himself. So God's plan from the beginning, as sin entered the picture and as people had a hard time feeling at home 
in the bodies that they were given by God was not just to let those consequences run rampant, but to be the ultimate covering for our sin and for our shame. And so the covering that you read about in Genesis, where the man and the woman cover their nakedness, is just a foreshadow of Jesus ultimately covering our sin, covering our shame, covering our nakedness. So while sin distorts and makes it difficult for us to feel at home in the bodies God created us with, God defined our redemption and God designed our redemption for our good. Now, it's, it's probably not news to say that the definitions I just talked about with gender and marriage and sexuality don't always seem good. And sometimes they can be met with hostility or at least strong assumptions like the, that Bible study I was talking to you about where you know, people just have strong assumptions about what Christians should or shouldn't do and how you, know, you can't tell people who they should love. So as we close, I wanna talk about posture. Because what some people suggest is that if you make a stand for any of these definitions of marriage, of gender, or sexuality, you'll get labeled condescending, or rude, or bigoted, or worse. And I will suggest that the reason that happens might be because you're rude, or because you're condescending, or because you're bigoted. Or, at the very least, because your posture is not Christ-like. Now, I will say, caveat, there are people who do want to target Christians. There are people who just want to argue. That is a category out there. But just consider something for one second. None of us are holier than Jesus. None of us have standards that are higher than Jesus's. Jesus made a public stand for God's definition of sexuality and marriage. We read it in Matthew 19. He made a public stand for what the definition of marriage was. And there's another time in the Sermon on the Mount. Like I said, none of us have higher standards than Jesus. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, if you look lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery. So Jesus makes public stands for morality, clear definitions, high standards, and at the same time, you know who oftentimes flock to Jesus? Sinners. Sinners. Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that's Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, saying, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. Isn't that a strange dichotomy? Jesus makes a public stand for the definition of marriage. Jesus makes a public statement about, with extremely high moral standards about if you look at a woman lustfully, you are an adulterer. He makes a public stand and he has higher morals than any of us. And yet, who flocked to him? Sinners. I think part of the reason for that is, is back, if you look in Genesis, the final, pass, or the final verse in our passage today, Genesis 2.25, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. They were fully exposed before God, and yet, before sin entered the world, they were fully accepted by God. The man and the woman were fully exposed and fully accepted. And before Jesus, sinners. He knew what their sin was. They could be fully exposed and still covered and accepted by his grace. And not just covered by his grace, not just accepted, Jesus sought after sinners. Luke 15 talks about a parable of a shepherd leaving 99 sheep to get one. And there are sinners of all kinds who have all types of sin, sexual, marriage, gender, what have you, gay, straight, what have you. Jesus is the shepherd that pursues all of them. So remember, when you're having these conversations with people, Jesus had to go after you too. Jesus pursued you as well. And there are two approaches to this, these types of conversations that are both wrong. One is to accept everything people do and everything people believe in the name of love, Jesus didn't do that. He made clear definitions of what marriage was, what gender was for, and he had high moral standards. The other error, though, is to turn your nose up at specific types of sin, or to turn your nose up at what I would call people's nakedness, their sin, their shame, the things that we might not like to look at. Jesus didn't do that either. He accepts us all despite our sin, and not only accepts us, Jesus pursues us, and in his life, Jesus pursued sinners, oftentimes sinners that were the most stigmatized, the tax collectors, 
the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery. Jesus pursued relationships with people like that. So when this conversation of gender and marriage and sexuality comes up, when you hear that scratch in the CD and conversation and it feels like you're stuck, like, uh-oh, what do I say? Remember, God defines and God designs for our good. And part of that design was to cover your sin so that you and me and people of all kinds with all types of sin can receive the mercy of Jesus. That's what communion is a reminder of that Jesus' body was broken for us, and that his blood was shed for us, no matter our sin, no matter our background. There's an aspect of the crucifixion that we don't talk about much. Um, when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified naked. So those little you know, diapers you see on the crucifix, not, not real, probably not there. He was naked. And it's, it makes you blush to even think about, like, forget the pain of the crucifixion, cru crucifixion for a second. Like, imagine having to stand in front of a, a huge mob of people naked with no way to cover yourself. That was to shame Jesus. But that also shows that the shame that a lot of us feel and the shame that many people outside feel about their sin, Jesus covered. Jesus was shamed for, so we wouldn't have to feel it. So the message of Jesus naked on a cross is not just your sin is forgiven and your sin is paid for. The message of Jesus naked on a cross is that Jesus is not ashamed of you. And if anybody would turn from their sin and trust him, we can be forgiven. We can be free of sin. We can be free of shame. And we can be at home with him in our bodies the way he created us to. Let's pray, and then we'll sing a song and take communion. Lord, thank you that you created each person in this room in your image. You've given us unique value and dignity and worth uh, that comes with how you created us as men or women, as older or younger, as um, richer, poor, educated, non-educated, whatever the, the descriptors may be, God. They all are... Um, overarchingly covered by image of God. Each person in this room, Lord, bears your image. I pray that we would embrace that, know that, and that would impact how we treat each other, Lord. Help us to remember that we are all image bearers. Help us to live our lives in line with the design that you've given each of us, Lord. Help us to turn from our sin, not by the power of our own strength, but by the power that your spirit gives us. To live at home in the bodies that you created us with, to treat the bodies you created us with, with dignity and respect and love and care, and to treat others the same in their bodies, Lord. Help us turn from our sin. Free us from our shame. Help us remember that you endure the cross, scorning its shame, so that we could feel and, and embrace the love, that was, the love that is ours in Christ, Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.